As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter 1. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy-to-read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Ask NT Write Anything podcast. Hello and welcome back to the show. It's Justin Briley here, Premier's Theology and Apologetics Editor, bringing you another edition of the podcast that brings you the thought and theology of Tom Wright in partnership with Premier, SBCK and NT Wright Online. And today's show continuing the conversation between Douglas Murray and NT Wright, part of our big conversation season three. You would have heard the first part of that on the podcast last week. This is the Q&A section of the show that you're going to be hearing today. And it's, it's part of a, an exciting range of things we've been doing with NT Wright recently. That included him being part of our unbelievable conference 2021, alongside historian Tom Holland and with other speakers uh, on the day as well. If you want all of the sessions, all of the video sessions from the conference, if you weren't able to be with us uh, or you haven't got a hold of them, unbelievable.live is the place to go to be able to order the digital download of this year's conference. And on a future edition of the podcast, you'll be hearing the live Ask NT Write Anything show that was part of the day as well. Uh, but we'd love to know what you think of today's conversation, both the part one that you heard last week and the Q&A that we're going to be playing out today with Douglas Murray. We have a special survey. Uh, you can find it with the links from today's show. Quick and multi-choice. We'd love to know what you thought about this big conversation. And if you'd like more from the big conversation with other big thinkers talking big questions, do go to our website, thebigconversation.show and sign up there. Let's get into your questions that came in this special conversation on identity, myth and miracles with Douglas Murray. Let's put this first question to you first of all, Douglas, and I'll invite you both to be brief if you can, because there's a lot of questions we would like to get through. Uh, so maybe just a couple of couple of minutes each on, on each of these. But um, Dylan asks, um, Douglas and N.T. Wright agree on the importance of the Christian story, but does it matter if it's not true? Uh, Douglas, how about you start on this one? Uh, well, obviously it matters. Um, uh, it matters a huge amount. Um uh, there is a, 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 a complex corner which I'm obviously at, which is um, whether you can, uh, whether it is possible, and I, I'm not dogmatic on this question, um, uh, but whether it is possible to keep what you need without holding on to the idea of it being true. Um, now, of course, what we mean by true in this context is very complex. Let's just park that for the moment. Um, I I think there is an enormous uh, um, temptation 
which sits at the moment. It's, it's many people have written about it. I mean, the person I think of most clearly is Schopenhauer uh, in the dialogue in, on religion, who, who, who writes in a fascinating uh, way about the, the possibility that it is, as it were, the philosophy for the masses. Um, I think this is a, um, a temptation to follow this idea. Um, I also think, obviously, for any believer, it's a, it's a great error because it's, it's the whole thing is a form of um, shadow play. Um, and I, I think my, myself that the, the answer isn't clear. Uh, how could it be, perhaps? But um, the question that I think it was the German jurist uh, Bockenforder who put the dilemma out, I first came across this in the writings of, um, of Ratzinger, Pope Benedict. Uh, Bockenforder's dilemma is, can we... Uh, can we maintain uh, um, an ethical and, and more structure without the roots that gave it birth? And many people think that the conclusion is already in on that and that the answer is no. Um, I don't know because I think that we're currently living through an, an attempt at that experiment. Mm. Um, it, it's, it's, it's like the question of you know, exactly where the fire stops and where the heat begins and when you know where you're living in the embers and whether you know whether you can get them going again it's exceptionally hard to know because you're living through it hmm. yeah you, 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 you would expect me just you would expect me probably to quote saint paul um if the messiah is not raised your faith is futile and we're still in our sins you know it's pretty basic uh, that, that, that there is stuff that happened that was unexpected, that was dramatic, um, that you couldn't actually have made up. Anyone 30 years, 60 years later than Jesus wouldn't have made it up like that. We know a lot about the sort of stories that they lived on, and this kind of breaks the boundaries. Um, that doesn't in itself mean that it's true, but it does mean that if you put that in the middle, you can see how everything else makes the sense it makes around it. I mean, I was just thinking as, as Douglas was talking, it, saying, could we have all the benefits, as it were, without it being true? It's rather like saying all the things that um, I most value about having been married for nearly 50 years now, supposing my wife didn't exist, but I could still have a lovely home and well-cooked meals, etc., etc. would that be all right? And the answer is, of course not, because it's all about her and being with her and together with her. And Christianity is all about Jesus. It isn't Jesus uh, so that we can have something else, a nice system of how to live. It's we have Jesus, and because we have Jesus, then all the other things make sense. So if you take Jesus away, and that means Jesus being crucified and raised from the dead, then I'm sorry, it's just not going to work. Theologians and others have tried to do without the resurrection in the last century, and their mm. systems basically fail, in my view. And the churches that follow those, I think, have often proved that point as well. So, yeah, yeah nice try, no cigar would be my sense. Yes, but but this is the bit where, where you end up feeling embarrassed in front of Christopher Hitchens, isn't it? Um, if, if, if you're required to believe in these, these things like miracles and specifically the, the core miracle at the, the heart of Christianity. Mm. And, and, you know, well, here's another question and uh, see what you think of this, Douglas. Um, Bensonium asks, um, when it comes to Douglas losing his faith, was it those intellectual difficulties in miracles, the virgin birth or something else? And I suppose I could ask about the resurrection as well. I mean, Tom obviously feels if Christianity is ultimately going to be helpful, it's helpful on the basis that something really happened. 
that changes the yeah. world, changes people, and then works out from there. I mean, yes. What's your take on that? If if you're not really sure that you can go down that resurrection route, well, let me just argue something slightly counter to what I just said, but it doesn't completely counter it, but it might complement it. Um, I remember some years ago reading a very interesting uh, a book by George Steiner, in which he relayed um, uh, a conversation he said was one of the most important conversations he had in his life, which was actually in South Africa, which Tom just referred to. Um, I, I hope I don't get it wrong. It's in one of his later books. But Steiner says that a late one night over dinner, he's talking with uh, some uh, activists, and happen to be black activists, and um, I suppose this must have been still an apartheid time. And one of them says to him suddenly, to Steiner, who's obviously Jewish, but you don't understand, we don't have a book. And Steiner said it was one of the most flooring and distressing things he had ever heard. We don't have a book. Now, obviously, these people were, were not Christian. Um, but they, what they noticed was they did not have a thing to draw upon in the same way that, for instance, Steiner, although he wasn't exactly a believing uh, a Jew, I think, had the Torah. Um, there's a similar point made by Alan Bloom in one of his books in the 1980s, I can't remember which one, where he says, he says, if, you, if you're not going to have the Bible, you would need to have a book of equivalent seriousness hmm. to base it all on. <laughs> and I, I, I've, I've always thought this is a very important challenge um, because there are books that people might put forward to try to base it on, but they are never of equivalent seriousness. And it's, it's actually quite hard to think of a book of equivalent seriousness to the Bible. Um, uh, but I do think this is uh, a, a challenge. Um, what would you base it all on? Exactly. Um, and and it's it's fascinating because um, A.C. Grayling, um, maybe 10 years ago, produced that thing called The Good Book, which was his mm. attempt to do a sort of secular Bible. And it fell flat yeah. on its face. Yeah. It was it was a very I thought it was a very shallow and, and rather distressing yes. production. Um, but the, the, the Christian, the point of the Christian Bible is, yes, it's a book which does this, that and the other. It's a great story. But the. The Christian Bible, the climax of the story is, of course, Jesus. The, the four Gospels bring the story of Israel to an unexpected and very shocking climax, as a result of which all sorts of other things happen. So it isn't that the Bible is just full of abstract teachings and ethics, etc. And, oh, yeah, we've got this book which tells us what to do. It's a story, and you're invited to get on board with the story and to be part of the onward movement that takes it forward from there. And in a sense, the Jewish Bible does the same thing, but in a much more wistful way, because it's telling a story, but the story sort of, well, does it peter out or does it turn into something abstract? That's a question which Jews wrestle with to this day. But the Christian Bible has that climax on Jesus. And if you take that away, well, it's a lovely idea, but why should we credit it? Yeah, I mean, Douglas, just coming back on that, and there's a question that maps ties into this a bit um, from Alex, who asks you, Douglas, would you consider yourself a moral realist? I suppose the question I want to ask along with that is, do you consider there is a story that we're supposed to be living by? I, is there something that transcends us? Is there a purpose? Um, mm. Is there a morality? Is there a something to which we are beholden? Mm. Because in a sense, 
that that idea has gone away in a postmodern world yes. in, a, in a new atheist world you know it it, it, life is whatever you make it there really is no overarching purpose no meta-narrative yeah. christianity obviously gave people that and continues to give yeah. many people that a story as tom says to live into but we don't seem mm. to have those kinds of stories anymore so where do you find yourself and, and and are you worried at the lack of this kind of a story now well i've said before i can't remember where that i um we're clearly, as, as I think was being mentioned, we're, we're meaning-seeking beings, we're storytelling beings. Um, that, that having been agreed, the question then is: is are we just meaning-seeking beings, or are we meaning-seeking beings and there's meaning? Um, now, I, I happen to fall inclined more to the, the latter um, position. I don't know exactly what it is. Uh, but my inclination goes that way. And it's partly because I think that, and I don't want to get too abstract here, but there are things that, that you can you can read even in, in non-religious texts, which, which strike you as true. Um, I was reading Brothers Karamazov recently, and uh, of course Dostoevsky's seeped in, 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 in Christian uh, religion, but there are two sto- two moments at least in that book where uh, you gasp because what Dostoevsky is doing is suddenly taking the story into an entirely other realm. Uh, um, that um, you'll know if you read it that that there's a moment when you realize that one of the characters believes he is being visited by the devil, and the moment at which he says to his brother, "How did you know he visits me?" is unbelievably powerful. It, it, it knocked me over when I read it because Dostoevsky is doing something that it seems to me is uh, um, accurate in our understanding of our lives, which is that we go through them, we, we act in them as if, uh, um, as if that is all, and we stumble at strange moments on things that suggest to us that it's not all. And this is an intimation. I, I say that, I mean, this is why aesthetics is important to me. It's why music is important to me, why poetry and, and uh, art is important to me, because I don't think it's doing something just on its own. I think it's giving us a sign of something. I think that it's what's so extraordinarily important about music is that music tells us something that exists in the language we cannot completely speak. Mm-hmm but which we know is inviting us towards something which we understand to be true. Um, I could go on all day about this, but yes, that's my. It's, it sounds very similar to what you've been talking about in your latest book, broken signpost, Tom, that, that all of these things that speak somehow to our soul are a, as you say, broken signpost towards uh, something beyond them. Yes. That, that, that the language of beauty and for me, music particularly um, is, enormously powerful and it's pointing towards something but then the music stops or the sunset fades or the the beautiful friend uh, is killed in a car crash or whatever and it looks as though then we're back with Jean-Paul Sartre and say life is just a sick joke Um, and that's where so much of our culture has been yeah yeah it was nice stuff but it doesn't actually mean anything and for me it's only again 
cracked record coming up. It's only when you put the story of Jesus in the middle of that and discover that Jesus and his crucifixion are the kind of ultimate broken signpost, because that's where we see justice denied, beauty trampled on, freedom obliterated, etc. All those things which were our great dreams, which we have lost, are actually true of the story of Jesus going to the cross. And I would urge anyone to reread the story of Jesus going to the cross, thinking of it like that, not just then this happened, then that happened, but those great things that we love, love, beauty, freedom, spirituality, um, all of these great uh, ennobling things, they're all there in that story. And Jesus himself, as God incarnate, comes to the place where our dreams let us down in order to be there with us and then to do the new creation thing out the other side. Uh, that, that's a, a summary of a, of a much more complicated argument, but that's where it's going. By the way, yeah. so there's one other there's one other point worth throwing out there, which is that well, there is another signpost, as it were, which is that it is, ex- it is actually exceptionally hard to live as a nihilist. Um, to, to live as a... To live as a nihilist. A nihilist, um, yes. Um, it, it's it's a very interesting thing. Nihilism is spoken about a lot. People quite often describe uh, um, particular ages as being nihilistic, uh, but in fact, it, it is very rare to come across an actual nihilist. Yes. Um, yeah. it, it, almost nobody lives in that state. I quite, can think quite. of um, in the modern era. I can think of probably only one person who, who pretty much approximates it, which is Michael Welbeck, uh, the French novelist, who, who certainly writes as a nihilist. But even he, you get the sense, and sorry, Justin, if I've said this before, I can't remember, mm-hmm. you get the sense is is not completely capable of living as a nihilist either. If I may give a quick example, there's an extraordinarily disturbing, I'm sorry, I know we said we'd do two minutes with each question. It's fine, it's, it's fine, uh, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> There's an extraordinary moment uh, uh, in a book by one of the, the surviving uh, journalists from the Charlie Hebdo offices who wrote a book called Disturbance a couple of years ago, a very, very upsetting book. But he described bumping into Mikhail Welbeck at a party after some time after the massacre. And he recognized him and Mikhail Welbeck had never met him before. They both got bodyguards at this party. And Welbeck sees the still very visibly um, wounded uh, journalist come in. and. And they stand opposite each other for a moment in this terrible moment of recognition. And Michael Welbeck quotes, I believe it's the Gospel of St. Matthew. He says in French to uh, the journalist, he says, um, he says, men of violence take it by force and then leaves. Um, it suggests to me that in Welbeck's head, it isn't entirely nihilism either. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that even then, and who knows where that came from, a bit of memory of French Catholicism or whatever, mm. uh, fr- phrases phrases that did actually give meaning. Um, yes. And that's a, that's, that's a Jesus phrase. Yeah. It's, it, it's like um, th- that. I, my favorite novel by the Jewish novelist Chaim Potok is My Name is Asherlev, where the young mm. rabbinic student who discovers he's got an amazing gift for, for painting, which is not something that his rabbinic community wants to know about at all, um, is trying to find models for the pain of being a Jew in the modern world. And he travels from New York to Europe and he goes around the galleries and he comes back and he paints crucifixions. And obviously there's a lot of kind of Chagall and so on in the background of that. But part of the the grasp of that is a sense of even in a, a, 
a, an ultra-Orthodox community where the idea of uh, a cross on the corner uh, outside a church in, in a street somewhere would mean those are the people who think that we're God-killers or whatever. So there's a real fear. Nevertheless, nothing but the crucifixion would do to express what he needed to express. And it's almost as though it's now woven in not just to culture, but the way that the human race is, that at the very moment when it tries to get away from um, all that traditional Christianity stuff, the best model with which to do it turns out to be something pretty central to what the Christian gospel was all yeah. about. I've got a, an interesting question here from Carla. Um, we'll start with you, Tom, um, as she asked this specifically of you. In a postmodern world, are you concerned that our use of the word story has a worldview confusion with myth instead of truth? In postmodernism, everything is story slash myth. Uh, do we need to distinguish Christian truth from story slash myth? Yeah, this, this is obviously a much more complicated thing than we've got time to address because there's at least four or five different senses of the word myth which have been out there. In the popular discourse, it just means um, a story about something which we know didn't happen. That, that's a very low-grade meaning of myth, so we can, we can park that. But I would say it's one of the strengths of postmodernity that it has highlighted the uh, ineradicable nature of story within human life. So, uh, there was a, a kind of a modernist rationalism which imagined you could reduce everything to propositions and that stories were just kid stuff to entertain the masses while the real philosophers mm. got on with the hard-edged propositions. And I think we now all know, and this is one of the, I say, one of the good things about postmodernity, that, that yes, we live on stories, but the fact that it is a story then does raise the question, but did it happen? It's the question which comes up in a court of law the whole time. It's no good standing there as a witness and saying, uh, let me tell you a story once upon a time, da-da-da-da, because the judge wants to know and the jury wants to know, but did it happen? Um, and you can rank stories according to the uh, uh, apparent intention of the storyteller is this a story which was designed? I mean, take Jesus' parables. It makes no sense to say of the parable of the prodigal son, ah, but what was the father's name? Or what did the mother say when they came back? Or which bit of the farm did he then own? That, that, that misses the point as a matter of genre. But if you take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, actually it would miss the point of those stories to say, oh, they were just spinning these fantasy narratives like sort of Pilgrim's Progress or something out of thin air. No, they. Luke is very particular about this. Let me give you the dates. It was in the reign of so-and-so, and so-and-so was the high priest, and this, that, and the other. This is stuff that happened. And the point is, the happenedness of it has changed the world. And I'm back to something Douglas said half an hour ago. We have sold ourselves short in Western Christianity because we don't know the true story of church history and all the great stuff that has happened. And we have believed the enlightenment lie that Christianity was just part of the problem rather than part of the solution all along. That's a whole other topic. But so I want to say, yes, beware of story collapsing into myth. Know what the different kinds of stories are and how they work. I mean, we don't have time to pursue it, Douglas, today, but maybe another conversation to have at some point would be the fact that I think part of your deconversion, for want of a better word, was to do with coming to doubt the reliability of the Bible and whether it was actually based on historical facts and obviously the, the miraculous nature of it as well. But do you feel like if 
if you could be shown sort of the factuality of it, as well as the way it makes sense of our culture and, and everything else, mm. that that would, I guess, be the missing piece for you that would take you back in some sense, it's, maybe it's even to, to a new kind of faith. <laughs> it's too complex to say what the missing piece would be or could be, and I, I, it would be presumptuous of me to, to try to try to explain it or, or suggest it, let alone know it. Actually, um, I, I would just duck that by, by making an observation on one thing that just came up, which is um, of all the different understandings of myth, even even the 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 least deep understanding of myth, it still irritates me when you hear the phrase only a myth exactly um it is an extraordinarily facile phrase uh, which is in far too common a use um um the metamorphoses of ovid are (laughs) are not history they are they're not only a story Um, but this this was the point that grasped c.s lewis wasn't it that he had thought that all this stuff was just myth and then he turned a corner and realized, oh, my goodness, mm. looks like this great myth actually happened once. Yes. Like, you know, the dying and rising yeah. corn king or whatever it was. Mm. And, and, and made that discovery in the, in the company of a great storyteller himself, J.R.R. Tolkien, of course. Tolkien, yes. Um, mm, yes. And in that sense, there, there is this, this idea that these great myth stories, you know, they, they are, you know, Lord of the Rings is, is – arguably drenched in a kind of Christological overtones and that, that these are the stories that seem to compel us and, and grab us and so on. Um, and in that sense, as, as time is drawing to a close, Douglas, I, I, I suppose, you know, you've, you've been so very gracious because a lot of these have been very personal sort of questions about faith and that kind of thing. But do, do you, do you wish for it to be true? Do you wish that there was that, as Lewis said, this is the true myth. Is that something that you could see? making sense of the world if, if there was a really a, a true story that everything sort of came of came course i mean i don't i don't really understand people who are don't don't wish it to be true <laughs> i don't really understand those people I do, I do have known some we mentioned one earlier who who don't wish it to be true didn't wish it to be true um uh, no of course i do i i um i suppose that um one thing that I've always found extremely powerful in that regard is um, is whenever I've been in the Holy Land, in, uh, Israel, surrounding area, um, I never forget the, one of the first times I was uh, there, I think during uh, the 2006 conflict in, in uh, Lebanon, and I was speaking to, I happened to stop one day and uh, there was a church that was being built. And it's quite unusual to need a, need a new church in that neck of the woods. Um, but one was being built for various reasons, and I asked uh, the uh, the person who was in charge that day. I said, "By the way, what what's the name of the church?" And he said, "It's the Church of the Transfiguration." And I said, uh, "Beautiful. How did you um, decide to do that?" And he said, "Well, well, here we we name churches after the nearest site, and the Transfiguration happened there." And <laughs> he <laughs> pointed <laughs> to the mountain beside us. And I, you know, I mean, uh, wherever in the world you're brought up as a, a Christian, it, it makes an enormous impact on when you see the um, uh, the physical sites. I, I've I've travelled around there a lot, and I, I I don't think for me anything quite equals that in terms of making an impact on me. Um, but I, I I think you know what we aren't transparent to ourselves, and I'm not transparent to myself, and I. I have no idea how to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've answered a great many questions 
very helpfully and, and uh, as honestly as you can, Douglas. Thank you very much for the time this evening. Thanks for all the questions that have come in as well on on Facebook and YouTube as well. Any any final thoughts, Tom, that you'd like to leave us with as we close out our discussion? Uh, I was fascinated by what Douglas just said about the Transfiguration. Um, I, I have been on one or two mountains which claim to be the site of the Transfiguration, mm. Mount Hermon, Mount Tabor, etc. Yeah. Um, for me, one of the most moving moments in my life was on Good Friday 1989, when for the first time I went into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem and spent most of the day there just contemplating, this is where it happened. And... Mm. When you're actually there, it doesn't seem odd that the the hopes and fears of all the years, or if, if you like, the pain and tears of all the year, years, should be focused on one place. And I, I intuited that, I felt it, and I thought it theologically. And in a sense, that was, you know, it didn't teach me anything I didn't sort of vaguely know already. But the concreteness of it is so striking there. It's not mm. just an idea in people's heads going around the world. This is stuff that actually happened as a result of which the world is a different place. The world is claimed by God in his kingdom as a result of those facts. As we close, it reminds me of something you said at the last time you came on the show, Douglas, that you, you had a an experience at Galilee where it mm. made you feel something happened here was the way you yeah. put it. Yes, yeah. I think that's right. Yes, yeah. I think it's. Yeah. I think it's very hard to come away from that without thinking about. Mm. Thank you so much for tonight's conversation. It's been a real joy and a pleasure. I wish we could have gone on longer, but uh, our time Me is too. over. Um, Perhaps we can do it again at some point in the future. But for now, uh, all that remains for me to say is thank you, Douglas, and thank you, Tom. Thank you. And uh, hope we'll thank see each other much. again at some point. Thank you. Very much. Thank sir. you very much. Well, I really hope you enjoyed today's show. Uh, it was a fantastic conversation. Lots of really positive feedback that we had to this live stream conversation between Douglas Murray and N.T. Wright. Again, uh, you can find out more at thebigconversation.show uh, where you can find other similar conversations between big thinkers. We'd love to know what you thought as well of today's one. Do check out the link to the survey as well that's with the info in today's show coming up next time uh, we're going to be hearing more live content from tom wright when he joined me at this year's unbelievable conference and we're going to be playing out the live edition of the ask nt Wright anything show with all of the questions that came in from the watching audience and contributions from tom holland uh, the historian who joined tom wright on the day and was part of that conversation for a special edition of this show so that's coming up at the same time next week. For now, thank you very much for being with us today and we'll see you next time.